Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So the reading is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. And this is page 1048 in the Pew Bibles. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Down to verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answers his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Yet when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me. And everything I have is yours. 
but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. When someone has given you advice which you found yourself very helpful, then you want to pass it on to others. And uh, in the writings of Jerry Bridges, uh, I have come across recently a, a particular sentence, phrase, again and again. And it is to this effect, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Now, when I first read that, I thought it was a little strange. And then I realized that when the New Testament exhorts us to do things, it is in effect saying, keep the gospel before you. That is the motivation. That is so vital. It is the gospel, the good news of what God has done through Jesus. It is that gospel that gives us joy. It is that gospel that gives us assurance. And we need that. And then it is that same gospel that motivates us to behavior. God has a G plan. And his G plan is this. Gospel, gratitude, godliness. From the gospel flows a real sense of gratitude. And out of that gratitude, more and more a godly life. So it is something that is vital. And I've been trying to do that over these past weeks. One way or another, to preach the gospel to myself. How do I do that? Well, you can take, for instance, a key verse and fix it to the edge of the mirror so that when you're shaving or whatever the ladies do in front of the mirror, then you can look at that. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So that's one way in which we can do it. Have it on the mirror, or better, the mobile. And then, what about this? Take your service sheet home. One of my great sadnesses today is that Christians individually don't have their own hymn book. And there are, of course, some contemporary hymn books that are fine. And it's good even just to be read as poetry. I love the contemporary hymns, but there's such a wealth of hymnology that we ought to be absorb, absorbing day by day. So take your service sheet home and then rehearse the gospel in song or at least through reading the hymns. And you can soon build up a little library of your own anyway. And then here's a third way. 
Seek to inhabit a Bible story. We're going to be looking now at one of the greatest stories in the whole of the Bible. And I've been trying to do that, to inhabit it, to get inside, to feel myself there, to be involved. Try to inhabit a Bible story. And then when you get on the number 120, you can just close your eyes and recall the wonder of that story and live it again. Tonight we're going to be looking at a great, great story, that of the lost son. And there have been a number of truths that have come to me through that, and I need to be reminded of these truths every single day. How greatly loved I am, how richly blessed I am, how deeply flawed I am. So if you open your Bibles, page 1048, we read those opening verses of the chapter because it is so important when we have uh, the teaching of Jesus, we see who he is addressing. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Jesus had a holiness that attracted. So easy to have a holiness that repels. And they were drawn to Jesus, the tax collectors and sinners. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Two groups of hearers the easily recognisable sinner and the well-camouflaged sinner. And verse 2, I suggest, is crucial to our understanding of this whole chapter. The Pharisees muttered, this man eats with sinners, welcomes sinners and eats with them. It is crucial because nearly all of chapter 14 and all of chapter 15 are about parties, are about celebrations. And that is the great criticism of the Pharisees. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so we see in verse 9... Verse 6, first of all, how a shepherd went after a lost sheep, found it, and when he had found it, he calls his friends and neighbours and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Then there's a woman who loses a coin, a very precious coin. And eventually, having searched for it, she finds it. And then she calls in her friends and neighbours and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. 
In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And you might ask, well, why such a fuss over repentance? And I would suggest because repentance is a sure, a true sign of conversion. We saw that this morning when we were taken to Acts chapter 2. And that first word that Peter said when the crowd cried out, the Jews cried out, What must we do? Repent and be baptised. The way that the Lord Jesus himself began his own ministry. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. But then you might say, well, how can finding a sheep, and even more, finding a coin, an inanimate object, how can that teach us anything about repentance? Well, I can only suggest this. We think so often we are taking the initiative as we move towards Christ. And then on reflection, we see how things have wonderfully combined together in our experience and we've been found and we've been found out. So Jesus begins, verse 11, continuing his teaching. Jesus continued. It's so important to see that. The lost sheep and the lost coin use the word repentance, but don't explain it. The lost son illustrates repentance without even using the word. Take it together. So let's try to inhabit this story. In the story, the father represents God. Verse 12, the younger brother said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. The younger brother would get a third. The older brother would get the Double portion, two-thirds. But the younger brother in asking for this is opting out of any responsibility to his parents in old age. And in Middle Eastern culture, that was never heard of. It's tantamount to saying, I wish you were dead. And such an insult as that would be felt throughout the whole community. The community that would be closely knit together. What an insult that would be. So he sets out and you can imagine him setting out with a, a jaunty step. Goodbye rules, goodbye work, goodbye boredom. Got money in my pocket. I'm free. But not long after that, having set out, he squanders his wealth in wild living. 
And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. He hires himself out to a citizen of that country and sends a Jew into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Friends have gone now. And he comes to this point where he repents. And if you put together the first phrase of verse 17 and the last of verse 20, this is what repentance is. He came to his senses, he went to his father. It was a change of mind leading to a change of direction. He came to his senses and he went to his father. He came to his senses about this so-called freedom. Is this freedom, is this where it leads to? And you notice in verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father. He wasn't merely lacking something called food. He was lacking someone called father. There was a broken relationship. And he came to his senses about sin. Father, I have sinned, he said. And sin is a God word. When you've used the word sin, you've brought God into the picture. He's not merely speaking here of his faults and his misdemeanors and his sowing of wild oats. He's not talking about the money that he's lost. There are many who grieve over the consequences of sin that do not grieve over sin itself. And so he comes to his senses about freedom and about sin. And he prepares a little speech. He's going to go back to his father and say this to him. And he's going to ask if he might go back as a hired man, a hired servant, which was the lowest rank of slave. The ordinary slave in those days would be housed and secure and many were well cared for. But the hired servant could be dismissed at a day's notice. So he's wanting to go back, not feeling that he's worthy of anything more than that. And then we come to one of the most marvellous scenes in the whole of Scripture. Where every movement and every action displays the Father's love. Eyes, heart, Feet, arms, lips. The father saw him. He saw him when he was a long way off. Isn't that marvellous? The father had been watching and waiting. 
day by day for his son to return. And when he sees him, what a sight that must have been. His hair would be stiff with dirt. His eyes gaunt with hunger. His feet would be cut and aching. And he had compassion on him. That literally means his heart went out to him. His heart went out before his feet went out. And he ran. And in that culture, older men never ran. It was regarded as something demeaning for an older man to pick up his robes and bare his legs and run. The wonderful thing is, as far as I can Recall, it's the only time in Scripture when we hear of God in a hurry to meet a returning prodigal. And he probably ran to the edge of the village. Why? Well, because of knowing the disgrace that he'd brought on the whole community. He wanted to put his arm around the lad and walk back into the village with him, preempting the insults and the abuse that would be hurled at him. And then you notice no stiff lecture, no repayment plan, not even a reproof. He throws his arms around him and kissed his sins into forgetfulness. How could he do it? There are some who are not too keen on the parable of the prodigal son because there's nothing of the cross in it. But I think that's a grave mistake. If you turn in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9 to verse 51, we have there a statement which is a great marker, a hinge, in our reading of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And everything that happens after this point in the gospel, everything that is said is done so under the shadow of the cross. Everything. He receives this prodigal because Another son whom the father loved left to the father's side to go to a distant country and even now is on the way to the cross. But there, this son was forsaken to the point where he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer comes back so that prodigal sons and daughters could be received. 
That's how greatly loved I am. That's what I need to know every day. As you face the ups and downs of life, we have a God, great, generous, in love. And the son begins his little speech, but you notice he's interrupted, and he's interrupted with the word quick, quick. Get the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. What a a picture that is. The robe of honour. The ring of authority. It would be a kind of signet ring that would be then pressed into wax to validate a transaction. So the son was given power of attorney. He could conduct business in the father's name. Isn't that wonderful? And then sandals on his feet. Only slaves went barefooted. So get sandals on his feet. You recall the Negro spiritual... I got shoes, you got shoes, all of God's children got shoes. When I get to heaven, I'm going to put on my shoes. I'm going to walk all over God's heaven. Now you see the distinction there. These were lifelong slaves on earth. But when they get to heaven, what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to put on their shoes. They're free. And they're going to walk all over God's heaven. Kill the fattened calf. Why? Because the whole village would be invited. And what's the importance of all that? This son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Listen to these words of Paul in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 and verses 4 to 7. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are son, A son, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Slave, son, heir. That's the pattern. And into such a relationship that we can cry, Abba, Father. That most intimate cry to God as Father. Dick Lucas tells of an occasion when he was in a shop in the east end of London and a Jewish family came in and there were little boys and they were eagerly crying out to their dad, Abba, Abba, Abba. 
And he said, I bowed my head and worshipped. And so we shout, he who is king of kings and lord of lords, the king of the universe, we can call not merely father, but something equivalent to dad, daddy. That's how richly blessed I am. Meanwhile, back at the farmyard, verse 25, the older brother now becomes centre stage, the older brother representing the Pharisees and and, uh, teachers of the law. Why is it so necessary to read on in this parable? It's the man who has two sons. We told that right at the beginning. We can't stop halfway. Why is it that we need to read on? Because I can see myself lurking in the older brother. We've heard of uh, Martin Luther this evening from Peter. Martin Luther tells, says this on one occasion, if you push a drunk peasant onto a donkey, he's almost certain to fall off the other side. I have a prodigal heart, but I have a proud heart. I might escape the sins of the flesh, but fall into the sins of the spirit. Pride, envy, falsehood, hypocrisy. I might be on my guard against license and slip gently into legalism. It's hard to stay on the donkey. And I need to learn how deeply flawed I am. Forgiven. Wonderfully forgiven. But forgiven and flawed. And I need to know that every day. And here this older brother hears music and dancing and wants to know what it's all about. We read in verse 27, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he he has him back safe and sound. And so the brother makes a scene on the doorstep. But do you notice what happened? The father went out to him. He refused to come in, but the father went out and pleaded with the older brother. I wonder if there's somebody here tonight and you believe that God ought to receive you because you've worked hard to live a good and decent life. Well, if so, Jesus may be your example and he may be your inspiration, but you will never know him as your saviour. The older brother had the spirit of a slave. 
Look all these years, verse 29, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Pride kept him from the feast. Pharisees, I think, were rather like park attendants who had these long sticks with spikes on the end and they were going around picking up the rubbish and their eyes become so fixed on the rubbish that they never see anything else. They never look up and see the wonder of the blue sky and the birds singing in the trees. What a tragic position to be in. The father isn't interested in goat parties for the self-righteous. Only gospel parties for sinners. So what was the attitude of Jesus to the Pharisees? Well, we know that he was greatly critical of them. But I want you to notice verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. What do you make of that? We can't duck it. I think the basic problem with the Pharisees is that they were rejecting the new thing that God was doing in history. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace, truth made visible in Jesus. And they weren't seeing that. They weren't seeing the great turning point in history. Will you turn with me to the letter written by a Pharisee? Romans chapter 5 albeit a converted one. Romans 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. You see what Paul is saying there. These are Israel. Israel is God's son by adoption. They were greatly privileged. But the moment had come when the way into God's family was open to Jew or Gentile that came through Jesus. God pleads with the Pharisees. 
Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, chapter 13. Acts chapter 6, a large number of the priests were converted. A large number believed. And the Pharisees were invited. If they don't accept, it is not because they're not invited. They are Read about the great banquet in chapter 14 of Luke. What about the parable, very briefly for today? There may be some young people here who've been brought up in Christian homes and within the embrace of the church here. And I want to say this to you you are greatly privileged greatly privileged not only because the teaching you're receiving but because of the role models that you have but I have heard people in that kind of position say something like this I wish that I knew something of the experience of the younger brother in order that I could have a definite clear cut conversion Never, never think like that. There is enough sin in the heart of every one of us to make conversion quite clear and definite. But some perhaps who are older have grown up within the church and you've slipped gently into the membership. And perhaps you're wondering, well, why all this emphasis on conversion? Sounds a bit radical. Well, I suppose the dead being made alive again is pretty radical, isn't it? And you feel frustrated by the joy and the zeal that others express and you don't enjoy. You see young people perhaps singing with all their heart. You can't understand that kind of exhilaration. It is possible to have what the reformers called a historical faith, or what I found recently William Tyndale called a story faith. That is, you believe the facts. You believe that Jesus came, that he was the Son of God. You believe his miracles. You believe in his death for sin on the cross. You believe in his glorious resurrection. You believe the facts. But you've never trusted the person. That's just a historical faith. You've never come to the point where you've placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour. I was interested to read the, uh, the testimonies of those young people who were baptised a month ago. And I think I'm right in saying that eight of the nine were brought up within Christian homes. And every single one of them was saying s- s- similar things. We knew the facts, 
But there came a point where on the basis of those wonderful facts, I had to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way as I could say the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Or as we were hearing this morning of Thomas, who came to that point, my Lord and my God. Let me close this evening with a little story of John Wesley. John Wesley was born and died within the Anglican Church. And he was brought up in the vicarage at Epworth and then in, going back to the 18th century he went with his brother Charles to Oxford and they gathered a group of young men uh, a kind of club it was called from outside the Holy Club because they prayed and they fasted and they studied the Greek New Testament and then they went out into the community to do good works. And in 1735, the two brothers went off to Georgia to Christianize the Indians. And after two years, they were utterly miserable, came back disillusioned. And as they returned to this country, they met on board ship a number of the Moravians who had a great sense of joy and assurance So they came back to this country and then in those wonderful words in May 1738 in the evening I went to Aldersgate Street and there as the preface to to Luther on Romans was read my heart was strangely warmed within me. And I had an assurance that Jesus had taken away my sin, even mine. And Charles, the younger brother who had gone through a similar experience a little earlier, finishes the story. Towards ten, my brother was brought in triumph by a troop of our friends. And we sang a hymn together with great joy. And John Wesley, looking back on that experience, said this. I exchanged the faith of a servant for the faith of a son. I exchanged the faith of a servant for the faith of a son. I did exactly that 54 years ago. Came to a point where everything had been depending on me and what I was going to do and so on. And entering wonderfully, Keswick 59, into a rest of faith. I wonder if there's somebody here tonight who needs to do just that. The faith of a servant for the faith of a son. And then, every day, in some way or another, just to be able to remind yourself, I am greatly loved. 
I am richly blessed, but I am deeply flawed.